entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who seek excellence. Bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builders Show on the Business Builders Media Network. Here's Marty Wolf. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business Builders Show with Marty Wolf, the show for entrepreneurs, business owners, and business leaders. I'm Marty Wolf, your host for the Business Builders Show, which is a production of Business Builders Media. You can get all our shows and podcasts from many more great podcasters at businessbuildersmedia.com, where we give entrepreneurs and business leaders the tools they need to have their voices heard. That's businessbuildersmedia.com. I have two guests with me today, and their names are Gary Heil and Ryan Heil, PhD. Gary and Ryan, welcome to the Business Builders Show. Thanks, Marty. Great to be here. And thanks for having us. I'm looking forward to this. I read your great book, and the title of the book is Choose Love, Not Fear, How the Best Leaders Build Cultures of Engagement and Innovation That Unleash Human Potential. Um, I'd like to start this way by saying how I first heard of Gary and Ryan, and that's through something called the program by uh, Washington Speakers Bureau, and the title of that program, or series of programs, is Leadership Lessons from the Fast Lane. So I'm going to give a plug for that right at the beginning of the show. I love that program, or that series, Leadership Lessons from the Fast Lane. Go to YouTube, go to Washington Speakers Bureau, you will find Gary Hiles' handsome face along with his guest, um, I was so impressed with everything going on there that I did what Gary and Ryan wanted me to do. I bought their book. <laughs> but the plan worked, Gary, uh, Gary and Ryan. The, right, Ryan? The, the plan worked so far. So far, so good. So far, so good. So, all right. So let me do some brief introductions, and we are going to talk about their book. Gary Heil is an internationally acclaimed expert in the fields of leadership, management, and organizational culture. He is a best-selling author. He's a lawyer, corporate director, and evangelist for the power of people-centered leadership. That's Gary Heil. Dr. Ryan Heil, chief operating officer and chief people and culture officer for the Washington Speakers Bureau, specializes in assessing and developing organizational cultures that help make workplaces more collaborative, creative, and productive. By the way, you can find Gary and Ryan on LinkedIn. So the book, again, is Choose Love, Not Fear. Ryan, you talk about Clemson University quite a bit in the book and in your LinkedIn profile. So what is your connection to Clemson University, and why do you talk about them in the book? Well, Marty, thank you so much for having us. I really appreciate it, and thank you for uh, your such high praise on our book. It, it means a lot. We spent a lot of time working on it, and so um, really appreciate the kind words and feedback you have for us. Sure. Clemson is a, Clemson is a special place for us um, for, for many reasons apart. So, um, you know, in the middle, as I started researching organizational culture and d diving in and doing the research behind my PhD and developing ways to assess culture, um, 
We were, uh, we were in the middle of our study that prompted this book, and I'm sure Gary will touch on this book where we interview, where we touch on this in a little bit in the interview, is where we interviewed 700 leaders to really understand, you know, why leaders don't do and don't put into practice what they innately know what to do from a leadership perspective. And as it just so happens that my time researching culture at Clemson coincided with this study, coincided with me developing a meeting a gentleman and developing a really strong friendship. Um, and he's one of my very good friends and that is Dabo Sweeney. Um, and I say that because at the same time as we're starting to analyze and assess these results as they come in and what leaders, how, how leaders start talking about their teams and in ways that are very unusual in ways that are almost, uh, unconventional. I'll leave the rest of this for, for Gary's story. But it turns out that we're looking at this and we're, we're looking at these results and all these great leaders keep talking about their teams as though they really, they love their teammates. They, they have a care for one another that is incredibly different, incredibly special, and, and a much different level of relationship than most leaders discuss. And as, as Gary and I are batting, batting this concept back and forth of love, and, and I'll be the first to say I was more the, you know, we can't use love. I just don't know. I think it's a little too touchy-feely. Um, you know, fortuitously, you know, this guy Dabo Sweeney pops into my life and becomes a good friend of mine, and to watch him coach is special. He is one of those leaders that, that is unrelenting with incredibly high standards and accountability for the people on his team. Best is the standard. But he goes about it and he lives life and he leads in a way that uses love as a lens to see everything, every action he, he has and every decision he makes is, is through this lens of love and a care about each one of his teammates and each one of his coaches and each one of the administrators that, that touch on the, the program and connected to it. It is a which creates an incredibly special place. And so it was, Clemson is so prominent because it was a place where, you know, we were doing our research and we got to see the living embodiment of what we were talking about playing out side by side concurrently with us. And so it was quite a very fortuitous and special experience. And therefore, it, you know, we, we talk about it quite a bit in the book. Mm-hmm. So, Gary, you did title the book, Choose Love, Not Fear, How the Best Leaders Build Cultures of Engagement and Innovation that Unleash Human Potential. Choose Love, Not Fear. As Ryan indicated, um, maybe a risky topic. So, Gary, why did you end up using that title? Well, you know, so 25 years ago, maybe more, I'd hate to admit it, but a guy named Jan Carlson, who wrote a book called Moments of Truth and was the chairman of SAS Airlines in Europe, told me that the first, the first decision every leader makes is to choose love or to choose fear. He said, you can't choose both. You can't do them both. So you got to choose one or the other. And he, he told me that you know, he was surprised at how many people defaulted to fear, knowing that fear makes us stupid. <laughs> and I, I thought I got it back 25 years ago. So Ryan and I are doing this research study, and you know we're looking at these leaders. Some of the research found what we thought. The biggest inhibitor to better leadership is the present culture that most people live in. We expected to find some of that. Mm-hmm. What we didn't expect to find were this handful of leaders like Dabo Sweeney, who walked around preaching a gospel of love. And we saw Dabo, and you want to write Dabo off as living in Dabo land, <laughs> but at the same time we're talking to him, we're talking to Alan Mulally, the guy who turned Ford around, and he says, you got to love him up before you coach him up. 
And we're talking to a football coach at De La Salle High School in Concord, California, who didn't lose a game for 12 years. And he's talking about loving his players. And there were these handful of leaders and everything we found that just talked about the level of caring they had. So we went to visit some. And when you walk into their presence, the first thing you feel, and I don't mean say, the first thing you feel is the relationship among members of the team are fundamentally different. Mm. It's just they care differently. They don't all call it love. Let's be real. But what they do is they care differently. And then we started to think, what are we seeing here? And then it became obvious to us. I mean, Ryan was a professional athlete. Uh, We've coached some. And you don't play well when you're scared. You don't play well out of fear. Positive emotion is the foundation of all great performance. Why should we be surprised that leaders who build positive relationships, so relationships based on positive emotion, tend to build greater teams. And so at the end of the day, we didn't feel like we had a choice. Uh, Mm. It jumped off the page at us. We weren't expecting to find it. But every time we found a great team, we found a different kind of relationship. So the uh, data or data, however you want to say that word, kind of spoke for itself. It screamed out that uh, that uh, the love, choose love, not fear was the great title. So Gary, staying with you, uh, I'm going to pick sentences right out of the book. So you wrote the book. You should know the answers. So here, you say in the introduction, let's see here, get this right. In the introduction, you tell us to be successful in the future, we will need less powerful leaders. Let me repeat that. To be successful in the future, we will need less powerful leaders. I want to hear more about that. Well, I think if there's one trend in the study of leadership that uh, has happened over the last couple centuries, actually, is there's been a devolution of power from those who used to hold all the power to those who had very little. Um, When you look at what happened with the printing press or any technological advance, it empowered or democratized the society in which it was. So you had masses could overthrow governments. Now we've gotten with the internet, turbocharged this idea of democratization so that a a group of students can overthrow and get the president of a university fired overnight, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the disadvantage for leaders is they used to be able just to command and control everything, and the cost of that's going up. And in a world that needs more innovation and more creativity, you're going to need a less powerful leader. That is one that uses their power differently, uses power for power's sake less, and enables people to think and act creatively, which means when they walk in the room, the leader with all the answers can't exist. Mm -hmm. We're going to need everybody to lead, and therefore, in some ways, you're going to see a a really sharing of authority in the future like we've never seen in the past. So, Ryan, to you now, so does that mean we have to pay more attention to how we build teams? I mean, a football team, uh, a corporate team, uh, a customer service team. Is this, is this kind of fundamental in this, in this book or talk to me about that? Absolutely. I think the way in which we build teams is, um, I, I don't say it's going to change. I think that, I think the research has shown that, Leaders are in the business of change to begin with. We're leading people to from somewhere 
to somewhere different and better, hopefully. Um, the research is out there that has shown that the leader's job truly for the last seven years is truly to create an environment worthy of the follower engaging in that and giving their discretionary effort. I think um, more so what's changing is we've been allowed to, leaders have used power and used their authoritative um, position over followers to get them to do stuff. And truly, I think we're going to have to stop confusing movement with motivation in the future. Mm. I think we're going to have to start to, leaders are really going to have to be conscious about the internal environments they create in order to attract the right type of people to give their discretionary effort. We can't just say, we can't, we can't incentivize um, intrinsic motivation. It just doesn't work. It, It never has. So what leaders are really going to be challenged to, especially when we talk about um, Gen Z leaders and millennials, is yeah. they really care about the places they work, the culture that exists, their opportunity to make a difference in something bigger than themselves, um, the autonomy to be creative and fail in, when appropriate, and, and to be on teams that perform really well that share the same values. And I think yeah. as leaders, it's going to be less less about the individual person and more about creating an environment where people cannot help but want to engage. And I think that is a major shift of focus. I think we're going to need to start to see that there's not going to be a choice moving forward. So Gary, you did mention Alan Mulally and um, you did mention him in the book. Also, you just mentioned him in, in, in this interview in the, in the yeah. phrase that uh, you mentioned and he uses is love them up before you coach them up, love them up before you coach them up. Tell me more about that. That's fascinating. Like uh, even in the uh, interview you did on leadership in the fast lane, I, I, I love that discussion. So maybe go a little deeper on what Alan said or what your views are on love them up before you coach them up. I think what Alan was saying in a very artful way, um, and, and I don't want to interpret for him because he's, he's a brilliant guy, really. Um, but I think what he was communicating to me was that, the common sense of it is that all influence is relational. If you don't have a relationship with somebody, you can't influence them. Mm-hmm. The only way you can do it is if you have enough raw power to force them to do something or coerce it. Otherwise, you have to have a relationship with somebody to influence their thinking, to influence their behavior. Mm-hmm. And what Alan's saying is that if you don't have that relationship, then you can't really give them feedback. You can't really coach them. You can't really influence them. And it should be, I think, just common sense. If you want to influence somebody, you need to have a relationship. Um, just this morning, Jill Ellis, the, the coach of the women's national team until 2000, they won the World Cup in 2019, soccer team, she was talking today about how connection is the fundamental premise between be, be, that you have to satisfy before you can hope to change the culture of anything or to influence people to play differently. I think great coaches kind of know that. Mm-hmm. They, I think they know and they spend a lot of time building connection with people so that they can give them the kind of feedback and the kind of coaching necessary to bring the collective together. Yet we continue to talk about these things because I guess common sense is not always common practice. <laughs> that's, the, that's the phrase we often hear. Um, Ryan, um, you also talk about vision or the visioning process in the book, and, and maybe that's part of this engagement or unleashing human potential. So talk to me about 
do you feel visioning or the whole vision for the organization is important? Talk to me about that. I do. I believe vision is in a vision for the company and an, a, a compelling cause worthy of your commitment is important. Now, I'm going to put a caveat in there in that it it's incredibly important once people are unfrozen or in terms, in layman's terms, feel the need to change. So once people feel like, boy, we are not in a great spot, usually that comes with, with a you know, poor performance or uh, organizational trauma of some sort. Mm-hmm. However, you know, it could be I, I just a poor, I'm just not satisfied where we are, where we need to be. And once someone is unfrozen, then it becomes, well, okay, where are we going and why are we going there? I think that the four questions that every follower asks of every leader when they first, first say, hey, follow me is where are we going? Why are we going there? Uh, do I think we have the team to get there? And will I be better off for having given my discretionary effort? Now, the last one, people don't necessarily say aloud, but the, the first three, they definitely do. And so as a leader, if you can't answer those with precise clarity, it's going to be a fool's errand to really expect people to engage with whatever you're going in the mission you're trying to accomplish. Mm. So it, it's really less about a vision and more about creating a cause worthy of my commitment. So Marty, if you're going to tell me, ask me to follow you, let's go somewhere cool. Let's do some good stuff. Let's make a big difference. Let's change the world in a positive way. I, you know, I, I'm not getting out of bed if you're going to tell me, hey, you know what? Let's just maintain. Let's get through this and maintain because that doesn't quite excite me. Or you know what? You know, let's get our EBIT from you know 16% this year to 19%. That's going to be awesome. I'm you know, that 3% is not going not gonna to keep me working those extra hours or getting up early or get me really excited to show up on a Zoom meet. So did you wake up this morning really excited about being on the Business Builder Show? Does that, like, fire you up? Huh? I've been waiting for this show for several weeks now. I, I've been excited. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't sleep all weekend waiting to sit on the Business Gary, Builder Show. Gary, do you, feel, do you feel the same way, Gary? I mean, are you excited? Uh, Huh? I do. I do. You, you can feel Ryan's excitement through the phone. It's unbelievable. Okay. My guests are Gary Heil and Ryan Heil, PhD. I always like saying that because you deserve to hear that uh, mentioned. Their book is Choose Love, Not Fear, How the Best Leaders Build Cultures of Engagement and Innovation that Unleash Human Potential. I love the book. That's why they're here. Um, Gary, you mentioned... You call him Abe Maslow. I would call him Abraham Maslow often. And I guess that has to do with the hierarchy of needs, I guess. But you talk about him in the book of Choose, Love, Not Fear. Why? What, what's the connection? Um, well, we edited and wrote part of a book called Maslow on Management uh, years it. ago. Got and um, there are a few people fundamental to the study of leadership, which I think hasn't progressed a long ways, has not progressed very much since the time that Maslow and McGregor, Douglas McGregor, Douglas McGregor was at MIT, Abraham Maslow um, was at Brandeis, and they had a debate across Boston about what it would take to be enlightened leaders in the future, and they did that in the late 1950s. And if you read their discussions to this very day, the issues are almost the same, and the things they were advocating then are probably more important now than they were then. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at this thing, what happens in the world, I, I do believe that Maslow had it right 
on his deathbed, he said that when he looked at his hierarchy of needs, he thought in those days that the most enlightened people were people that were self-actualizing, a word that I think did more for having people not read his work because mm-hmm. people can understand it. But he, in his deathbed, he thought he had it wrong. It isn't people just learning and growing that are evolved. It's people that commit themselves to a cause bigger than themselves. And he thought he missed that for most of his life and that we were social animals that needed a collective accomplishment to a cause that provided meaning in our lives. And I think that his work is the, what they call him, the father of humanistic psychology. I think his work is often misinterpreted and is brilliant even to this day. So mm. when we quote him in the book, it's because much of what his work was is still relevant and often misidentified in the literature. Beautiful answer. Ryan, um, most, maybe all of us who listen to this show have heard about getting the right people on the bus and that kind of stuff, you know, yet it seems to me, Ryan, that, uh, uh, maybe our hiring processes are not producing the talent we need. So we talk about having the right people on the bus, but uh, I don't know if we're hiring them and, and so that they can produce the way that we would expect and hope. What's, what's happening there, Ryan? What do you think? Okay. For me to make a, a generalized statement across organizations, I'm not sure I'm Fair to do just that, but I do believe that we might need to rethink our framework for for understanding what it's going to take to not only attract, um, but hire and maintain and keep really highly talented people. I mean, we really we changed our hiring practices at the Washington Speakers Bureau, and it's truly it's it's fill our pipeline with incredibly talented people that are hungry. Mm-hmm. that are curious, that are of a high learnability quotient. Um, we've identified those three things as really um, the floor for us as the most important pieces. Um, we believe that, you know, if, if they don't have the requisite necessarily skill right off the bat, if they're somewhat close, if they're incredibly hungry, they're incredibly uh, curious and have a high learnability quotient, then we can actually work uh, and we can train them up with the right help to get them there. But that's just the beginning. And then it's making a competitive offer. So it's not it's not just um, offering, you know, in the 50 percent salary band. It's it's treating them because everything, every action you make, we believe sends a message. And mm-hmm. so it's paying them fairly. It's paying them well. And then the most important piece is once once the piece that's most often overlooked is creating an environment where they can be engaged, where they want to come to work. It's, um, you know, I think we're working in such a global global environment right now where if you're not actively recruiting the people you already have on your team, you're susceptible for them to get poached. I think mm. that there's a sub- short supply of incredibly talented people, or at least known quantities. And if you're not continually treating the people on your team as though they're your five-star recruits and the people you want in their job, someone else will. And so it's a constant reminder for managers to mm. keep Keep, keep after it. Keep pushing. Understand what creates that environment. Are they have opportunities to learn, grow, and make a difference? Are they? Are we maximizing their potential? Are we, are we continuing to stifle them? So, um, Actively you know. recruiting the people who are already on your team. I, I love that. You know, uh, Ryan, I deal with a lot of small, mid-sized businesses, and uh, 
I'll call it a mistake that I often see is uh, you are in that vein, but the whole idea of onboarding, so many small businesses just kind of just don't do well with this step. Um, talk to me about, you know, your views on onboarding that talent that you've just described. Sure. Sure. I, I think onboarding is an interesting piece to it. it, it it's, a couple pieces get overlooked. Oftentimes when we think onboarding, we think, all right, can we get their forms done, the I-9s, the tax forms, get them in the system and their access permissions granted. Um, and we, we really fail to understand and spend as much time and energy um, indoctrinating them to the company, teaching them about the values. Who are we as a company? How do you succeed? What do we value most? How are you going to be mentored? Who is there for you to turn to when you're stuck? It, it's, this is the opportunity to really indoctrinate new employees, new hires to who we are and who we want to become aspirationally. Um, mm -hmm. I know that Gary can speak to this. He was integral in, cre in creating um, part of the Disney's Traditions One program that's so famously written about. Well, Gary, go, Gary, go well, ahead and do that. First of all, thank you, Ryan, but I, I really didn't create anything. I think I was part of assessing it and, and maybe making some suggestions for helping with it. But, you know, if you go through Traditions 1, which I have been a participant in, and I was blown away. I mean, when you come and you have a cast member who was a high-performing, live-the-values cast member, and the first um, person that a new hire sees is somebody who lives the values and bleeds pixie dust, as happens in Traditions 1, you are set mm -hmm. off on your career in a positive direction. In the same way, in the old days when Hewlett-Packard was the place that developed more leaders in Silicon Valley than anywhere else, it was really interesting. They didn't leave the first day to chance. When you showed up at the first day of work as an engineer at HP, you had a mentor assigned. And you had somebody who basically taught you from day one, you know, here's your job. Here's what's expected of you in the first week. It wasn't like, let's hang out and meet the boss. Yeah. They expected you were, it was communicated to you right up front. We are glad you're here. We expect you to be here and we, we value your time. I think the best of companies that do this basically act like they've just recruited you onto their ball club and that you're, we're so glad to have you and they don't waste a minute of your time as they start to challenge you with opportunities that test your test your metal from day one. Mm. I, I think that's a rare happening though. You know, I, I, think, I think most people show up and you meet the boss and you walk around for a day hearing every story about the company that maybe you, the people don't want you to hear. <laughs> True. Yeah. 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 That's uh, that happens all unfortunately all the time. I I see it repeatedly. I just I want to faint when sometimes I hear some of these things like and some of these people I'm working with, so I'm embarrassed that it happens. <laughs> you know, so but it does. And you know what, Gary? Not all hires work out. Not all uh, managers or leaders work out. So in your book you talk about Maybe we should become less tolerant of bad leaders. Maybe we should become less tolerant of bad leaders. Talk to me about that, Gary. Well, I, I, I could talk about it forever, but you said it right. I mean, it's not like in a company we don't know who they are, hmm. right? If you've been in a company or, or, 
or help to run part of a company, or if you've been the, the newest employee in a company. If you said, who really stinks as a leader? Everybody would have the same list. Come on, let's get real. We all know who they are. Yeah. My problem is we not only tolerate them, hell, we promote them. I mean, how many times have we seen the next person promoted be the person who's the biggest jerk, who has good results, a salesperson who sells a lot, who is a real idiot with people who gets promoted to be the sales manager and we go, what possibly could go wrong, right? <laughs> or, or, you know, you have somebody who's a technical expert you can't afford to lose because you're just sure your company's going to fall apart if you lose this person and you promote them and everybody else in the company is going, what the hell did we just do, right? Yeah. But then because we do it, we can't do anything about it, right? And on the other hand, in companies that would let the, the person go, okay? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've yet to find a company that lets somebody like that go, that walks around three months later going, you know, we sure do miss old Jim. Wish he was still here. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm surprised we're surviving without Jim, right? Yeah. I mean, we don't do that, but yet we tolerate these people. And that's why, you know, when the Stanford professor wrote, um, I shouldn't say what it is. I'm going to call it the no jerk rule, but he calls it something else. Yes, I got it. Right? Yep. You know, I think we should have that. Yeah. I think that we deserve good leadership. I think people who sacrifice to be part of our teams deserve to be well-led. And when we tolerate leaders, we know to be bad. We know to be frustrating. We know to be self-centered because to be a leader is to be not self-oriented. Leaders provide opportunities for people to find meaning in life. It's not about them. And I, I think, as you know, we wrote about one of my really good friends and one of Ryan's really adopted kind of parents, a woman named Pam Landler, who runs the What Worth magazine calls the best-run charity in the world mm -hmm. and in Florida. And she has that sign in her office that Ryan and I look at all the time, which says it's not about me. And she walks out every day. And this is a woman who lives in vulnerability and humility and runs a charity that takes 6,000 families with terminally ill kids and takes them on a week's vacation a year. And she has a sign that walks out and says, it's not about me. And what she means, it's not about me. It's about the 2,000 volunteer hours I get a week. It's mm. not about me. It's about the parents of the kids who are suffering. It's not about me. It's, it's, it's about the terminally ill kids we serve. And if there's one person who doesn't need the sign, it's her. But I, I think we would be hugely better off if we would not tolerate as long leaders who don't realize it's not about them. It's about the teams they're lucky enough to lead. And I, I feel strongly about that. But I, I think that's my long-winded, obtuse answer to your simple question of let's, of let's get rid of them, for God's sake. Come on. Gary, I think we need a separate interview just to I think, cover that. Go. I think that's right. Do the, do the shortest interview in history. Let's get rid of them. <laughs> Well, while you, were, while you were speaking, I'm with you. I'm on board. Obviously, I'm on board with everything you say in the book, both of you. But what the phrase that came into my mind while you were talking was what we allow, we teach. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, we, right, Gary? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's true. What we tolerate, we teach. And yeah. The first woman vice president at Amdahl Computer. Now, you can tell how old I am because you, <laughs> I know, you. you have every year, every every millennial and Gen Z person that go, Amdahl? That's a computer? I thought it was a mouthwash. No, I mean, it's like, come on. I mean, Amdahl, you know, IBM competitor um, in those days. I've never heard of Amdahl. Yeah, I know. Oh, no, Gary. <laughs> That wasn't right. <laughs> Ryan, that wasn't right, you know? Not just saying. <laughs> it was Go right. ahead, Gary. You got it. Go yeah. ahead. Well, she's the first woman vice president of Amdo, and she says to me, what you tolerate, you teach, and I've never forgotten it. And how many times do we say, you watch people make this, oh, look, you have to understand, Jim had a bad day. Or, you know, I remember sitting in the dean of a business school's office, and he was, he was like, you know, trying to make these professors feel good who are living in the 15th century somewhere. And, you know, and he's tolerating it. And you're like, by God, man, let's go. But, you know, sometimes we confuse tolerating BS with not being demotivating. I mean, how many times, and Ryan probably can speak to this better than me, but I don't know how many times We've been in meetings where people say, well, you can't really tell them that because that would demotivate them. And you're going, you know, come on, if you tell them the truth, it's demotivating. And he goes, yeah. oh, yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Am, I, am I wrong about that, Rye? No, not at all. Not at all. And I think that's, that's the challenge leaders have is to buck the culture that has been so successful for so long. I mean, yeah. stability and predictability are incredibly powerful mechanisms with, with culture. And so – yeah. Anytime you try to address those, it, it, people do not like that. Well, you know, that may be a good segue to my next question. Chapter four says, uh, dare to expect remarkable. So I guess we're getting more on the positive side, I guess. Dare to expect remarkable. Um, yet, it says in the book, yet we seem to expect so little from so many. <laughs> so, so Ryan, maybe you can continue down that path. We ex- seem to expect so little from so many. Talk yeah, I'm going to punt this one to Gary. He's got, he's got some. You want you go ahead and start this one, and I'll finish this one off. I don't know how to start it. Well, look, you know, the first thing I was taught 104 years ago, right when I started, Lincoln was president, and you know. <laughs> You know, we were all taught to set SMART goals, right? Specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, trackable goals. Yeah, yeah, I like it right up to the point that they have to be achievable, right? Yeah. Well, achievable in what? The old system or the new system? The system we haven't invented yet or the old? It's always in the old. So what we do is we would go in and negotiate with our bosses to make sure we could do something so we would get our bonus in the system we already exist, which means we can keep the system we have without innovating it, right? And so my goal then was to negotiate for something that was not too high. Or you have performance appraisals that call a three out of five mark fully meets expectations. Well, expectations should be borderline unreasonably high. Mm-hmm. And all the research and expectations, that, you mean Dabo Sweeney doesn't come out at Clemson's football team, right? I'll talk about this and go, you know, pretty good is good enough. I mean, the last thing you want on your epitaph is, I met budget because I was 5% better than this year, right? And yet, that's what we expect. And yet, Ryan, you could talk about this. I mean, you were listening to Comal's interview today on leadership lessons. And, you know, the big sign in her in her house 
is impossible is just a word. I mean, this is somebody who's who's feeding hungry people and started a for-profit organization to to feed generations of people. And she's 30 years old and she runs around going, eh, impossible is just a word. We can do this. And what comes to mind for me, Rye, is the old saying that, you know, those who think a thing impossible should stop getting in the way of those that are actually doing it. <laughs> yes. No, it's exactly true. It's exactly right. I think too often we succumb to, you know, best practices or what, what could exist or within reasonable nature. And if you, if you really spend time around these leaders that, that are incredible, they're the ones that are getting the uh, software developers in Silicon Valley to work for all day long for half, for half of what they could be making at a company right down the road because they want to do something absolutely incredible and the people leading the way believe that it's possible. I think the job of a leader is to help show, illuminate what is possible for someone to see bigger, that they can achieve more than they even believe they can, and there's a way to do that. And so when you see it in it's athletics, it's incredibly easy to see. You see a lot of these five-star kids will come into a football program, and this is the expectation. You cannot win a national championship without doing the fundamentals, uh, doing the incredible, the easy things in a, a remarkable way. Um, the same thing in business. It's if if you believe in the people you're working with to do great things, it really makes a difference. It, it, it's an emotionally compelling cause. People want to do amazing things and they want to do something that is not ordinary um, and make a special contribution. And if you don't believe it intrinsically, people smell it out. And as a leader, you have to believe in the people and you have to believe that, that, that greatness is possible. You know, it's really interesting to me, Rye, is that, is that there's some teams that just win all the close games. And there are other teams that when the game gets close, you just know they're going to lose right? Some people just believe that they can do the unbelievable, right? You know, it's it, when you see somebody like Anson Torrance of North Carolina that's won 25 national championships in 35 years, there's no way he could have believed that that were possible, but he believed that women athletes could fundamentally perform at a different level than they had in the past. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think there are examples all around us of people who have done the unbelievable and the remarkable, even something as simple is in a bank. I've worked with a bank where it's a really mediocre bank. It's actually a bank for, it's actually a community college for a really average service. But you can find branches in that bank that are so extraordinary that you walk away going, what the hell just happened there? Mm. Because some leader just refused to be limited by what other leaders think is impossible. And I, I think it's all around us. Yeah, there's been studies. I'm sure you guys are aware of them. Um, you know, just take even the convenience stores. And let's say there's a chain of, uh, let's say, 50 convenience stores. And if you study the, the high-performing stores, what do you have? You have a high-performing manager, someone who believes that they can be better, that they can hit those margins, that they can hit that customer service level, all those kinds of things. But, but maybe a fly in the ointment, if you will, in this, uh, in this process, I'll challenge you a little bit. You do talk about it, is that some of these teams, many of the teams in our organizations, well, maybe not in software so much or in Silicon Valley so much, but a lot of these teams in manufacturing and a lot of other industries, they're led by, quote, unquote, older people. Um, yet, there's a lot, consistently, there are a lot of, quote, unquote, younger 
members on the team. So is, how's that working out, I guess? How do we inspire those team leaders? Or, or what's the difference? Or is there a difference? I'm kind of rambling. You know what I'm asking. Older, uh, older team leaders working with younger team members. Talk to me. I'll call on Ryan to try to bail me out of this question. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, we have to remember that we are people leading people. Older, younger, it doesn't matter. The, the, the experience level and each team is socially constructed differently. But at the end of the day, you're leading people and people have similar needs. People want to feel valued. People want to feel, feel like there's trust. And as Gary said, relational, relational abilities all, is, is, the, is the key ingredient in, in influence. And so if I'm older and I can connect and create an environment um, that allows our, my younger um, colleagues to flourish and grow, then that's fantastic. And if I'm an older person that is stuck in my ways, then I'm going to be equally as unsuccessful, I think, as a younger person who is, uses the same type of techniques. I think where people are in their leadership journey is a lot more, it has a lot more to do with how can I create an environment that is inclusive, that, is a, that, that, want, that creates uh, people to want to engage with them. That yep. shows them that more is possible. That provides the opportunity to to do something special. At whatever age, learning, reading, studying, adapting uh, is is very very important. Ryan, I want to stay with you. Um, again, taking it right out of the book, it says, "If we are able, if we are to be accountable for giving our best, we must learn to compare today's performance with our potential." Compare today's yeah. performance with our potential. You probably really like this one. Talk about it. Well, I mean, you know, we talk about that in the book is calling it type two accountability. Too often we come into companies and we say, well, how are we doing? And they're saying, well, we've grown our sales 5% over last year. So we're really doing quite well. Um, when you talk to the employees, they'll tell you, boy, we have a lot more to give. There's a lot more here. And, and for us, it's really looking at performance and accountability in terms of what is possible on this team. We have human potential that is sitting here of really smart people waiting to be engaged. Are we getting the most, is this, is this what the, the, pit, the ceiling from what we can give? Or are we messing around here on the sides and saying, boy, this is better than last year? Because I think if we want transformative change, if we truly want to be innovative and creative and think about things differently, we're going to have to do things differently. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, a, it's a whole process that starts with just being able to, to get outside the box. And do so, Gary, maybe talk to me a little bit more in that same vein, staying with that same thought of the word accountability. So maybe give me your view or your, what you write, what you talk about in the book in terms of the word accountability. Well, we talk about mutual accountability in the book. And uh, let me piggyback on what Ryan said, and then I'll, I'll come around. And, and uh, I think Ryan is one of the examples in the book, so he, he might talk to it. Um, look, I, I think Ryan's right. I mean, it's, you know, you see it, 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 you know, as a parent when you sit there and say, yeah, I, I, I improved a little bit from last year. But if I'm not even touching my potential, if I'm the highest scorer on the team, but I'm really just kind of dogging the little and I have so much more potential, the best leaders say, you know what, I love you, but you're, 
you're so much better than this. You, there's so much more left in the tank. And I think we spend so much time because of the way things are structured, looking at 15% improvement on this and 10% improvement on that. I think we've yet to scratch the surface on how much better our teams are and our players are than we've given them credit. When you, when you look at the quality movement in the United States or you know, any of the manufacturing uh, improvements over the last 20 years, they're orders of magnitude in, in, in improvements in terms of defects and stuff. You know, it's not like we got 10% better. We got 1,000% better. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think we don't even have the imagination to realize what's possible. When we talk about accountability, we don't talk about it as our parents holding us accountable or our teacher holding us accountable only as a management activity. We talk about it as accountability is a promise we give to each other on a team to give our best, to give our maximum effort, to do all the things that we can do to make the team successful. And, you know, the example we use in the book was one that hit us in the face about how great teams really act. When, when great teams are enforcing values they don't wait for the manager to enforce the values they hold each other accountable mm-hmm. and we we were watching a football practice and it was at clemson we don't say that in the book but it was at clemson and we saw two players get in a scuffle in the middle of a scrimmage and before the coach could lift his finger in this case the players on the team threw the two players off the field <laughs> threw the two players off the field and said we don't do that here that's not our culture that's not our values you're better than that and threw the two players off the field. Hmm. About 10 minutes later, they come running back on the field during the scrimmage. And the first thing the captains do, the seniors on the team do, is they give both of them a big hug and say, welcome back. Don't do that anymore. We're better than that. And when Ryan and I talk about accountability, I, I think we're talking about players, teammates, holding each other accountable for the high standards that the team has set as part of its identity not a management activity through some sort of appraisal process. Wow. Okay. Don't go anywhere because there's more, but I want to tell everybody who my guests are. It's Gary Heil and Ryan Heil, PhD. Their book, if you haven't already ordered it while you're listening, order it right now. It's Choose Love, Not Fear, How the Best Leaders Build Cultures of Engagement and Innovation that Unleash Human Potential from this conversation you know you need to get a hold of this book and start reading, start sharing, and start implementing. So I'm going to take a page from Gary Heil's interviewing skills, which I admire, by the way, Gary. And so one of the questions you ask people, you may ask it in a different way, is you ask them, what are you reading? So this is a page from Gary Heil's interview skills. So I'll go to you <laughs> first, Ryan, and I'll say, what are you reading that you want, other than your own book that I'm, re- I'm sure you've read several times and you've shared a lot. In addition to uh, what uh, your book, what are you reading? What's on your nightstand kind of question? Boy, well, in full transparency, right now, I am in the middle of a Caesar Milan book. I am a new dog owner new puppy owner and uh feel like very much a rookie um potty training is quite a challenge um we're That's getting great. better That's we're getting great. better 
Uh, You're learning. Yes, yes. Caesar Milan is there. Um, But otherwise, I just finished a book by Emily Chang called Brotopia, which was a a really fascinating look into um, the culture of Silicon Valley. I I thought that was enlightening in many ways. And if if you haven't read that, I highly recommend people to read that. Um, Say the title again, Roy. It's called Brotopia. Brotopia. If I can add my own recommendation, both of you, for somebody we just interviewed who I love, this guy, his name is Alex Lazaro. He wrote a book called Out Innovate, how global entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley. It's magnificent. Um, So there's my recommendation. I know that wasn't my question, but I threw something in there. Gary Heil, what do you got on your nightstand or what are you reading? What you'd like to recommend? Well, I I think what I'm reading is... uh... I just finished a, a book called Leadership BS by Jeff Pfeffer at Stanford about why we, I think he puts uh, some good things to do with Barbara Kellerman's research into why the $15 billion a year we spend in leadership development is paying very few dividends. I thought that was pretty good. Mm. And I am rereading the fifth edition of what I've read a hundred times before, but get the uh, Something new from every time I look at it, Ed Shine's book on leadership and culture. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. We are going to wrap up, but before we do, I'd like to ask uh, both of you, is there anything that I should have asked you I didn't uh, or that you want to point out that's in the book that you want all of us to know? I'll, I'll ask Gary for his comment first. No, I, I, I really enjoyed it, Marty. I know that you're a, a, a student of the same things that we are. And I feel like we're all learning together. And I think the only thing I would like to add is my appreciation to what you do in this podcast on an ongoing basis to uncover thoughts about, because I, about ways we can lead more effectively, because I do believe that we celebrate too much. The fact that 34% of the people in North America are highly engaged in their jobs or in their work. I do believe that's an indictment of what we could be doing. And so I think it is dialogues like these that you help create that can help move our thinking forward. And I applaud what you're doing. I am a, I am an unabashed fan of what you do to create the kind of thinking that we need to move forward. Thanks for doing it, Marty. That's kind, Gary. Thank you. Ryan, anything you'd like to add? No, same, same as same as Gary. We're very appreciative of of the light that you're being able to shine on our book. I think it's really important for us. We believe that that better leadership is possible, and that work truly does not have to be a four letter word, and that leading in the future is going to have to look a lot different than it has in the past. And so, um, your help in spreading the good word and, and getting the gospel out there is much much appreciated, and uh, we are very grateful. And thank you for the opportunity. It's been an absolute treat and an honor. I've enjoyed every minute of it. The book, again, is Choose Love, Not Fear by Gary Heil and Ryan Heil, Ph.D. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being part of the Business Builders Show. Thank you for listening to the Business Builders Show on the Business Builders Media Network. Find all our shows and many other great podcasts at businessbuildersmedia.com. That's businessbuildersmedia.com.